Pastor Walker has had some great opportunities, in fact, probably more opportunities all at once than he wanted to have. The, uh, last week he was at Presbytery representing us, and uh, he then led, uh, was a big part of the summit, which is pastors and wives and some stuff, and he led much of that. And then he just got through preaching this morning in Colorado at um, Reformation Church, and will be there the balance of the week. Um, has seven sessions to uh, lead there in Elizabeth, Colorado. So uh, continue to pray for him because he's got a heavy load that he's carrying. And uh, I know it was a whirlwind for him the week or two before he left because he had to prepare all those things. So uh, this morning we're going to be in Second Thessalonians 1, 11 through 12. And let me preface this by saying... Um, there are several prayers that Paul prays, um, one's in Ephesians, one's in Colossians, and then this one that we're going to be covering is in Thessalonians. And I think even, there's a couple ways to use these prayers. I think one is to inform how we pray for one another, um, because we see Paul's heart uh, infused with God's desire to communicate to these churches and it's inspired, and, it's, and it really should inform how we pray. It can be that. In fact, I have these three prayers at the top of my prayer list that almost every day I kind of work through those and, and use those to be praying for the people that I'm praying for. And um, the other way is to realize that these prayers apply to us also as believers because Paul, in the inspired word, is praying for the flock and we are that flock, and so they definitely apply to us. So if you uh, can turn there, and I think it's going to be up on the... Uh, let me sc- get the screen started here. Um, let's stand together as we read through Second Thessalonians 1, 11 through 12. Let me see. There we go. I think I... To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that this is the heart you have towards us expressed in the Apostle Paul, and these are desires that you have to see those things take place in our life, to understand the transforming power that even is in not only your power, but as we pray for one another in these ways, that you would do that work that you promised to do. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. I want to look through the, the context of this um, Chapter because this is the beginning of the, the second letter of Paul to the Thessalonican church. And so when we jump into kind of a sermon that's based on one little text that we're dealing with, it's helpful to know, okay, where did that come from? Where's it going? And so forth. And so I'm going to, as I go through here, I'm going to um, put up a little bit of this um, and I'm going to kind of read through this with you to see, this is, this is from verse, starting from verse 3, after the introduction. 
And he's talking about where the church is at, and you have some insight in what they're going through right away in the very beginning here. He says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers. So he's thanking him for the, this church, and he says, it's right, it's appropriate because of this. Your faith is growing abundantly. The love of every one of you for one another is increasing, and therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and your faith. That, that's, that's key. We boast about you because of your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions. So there's persecutions going on and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Okay, So that's, that's a critical thing to know. And he says, this is evidence. So what's he talking about there? He's talking about their steadfastness and faith in the midst of persecutions and afflictions. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. Whoa, he's talking about judgment all of a sudden. That you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you're suffering. So he's explaining this whole process there. And he says, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Wow, he's talking about now God's going to repay those who afflict you in this persecution and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. And so there's a sense maybe even that there is a short-term thing that he's got in mind, but I think we'll see here that it's more of a long-term a thing that he has in mind here also. Let's go to this next slide here. My, I don't think, there we go, okay. Uh, there we go. Let me see where we're at. So he says, I'm trying, my, my uh, advance isn't working quite like that one is. So when the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels... And then he says, this is what happens. In flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God. That's the result of those who are persecuting them. And on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And so likely he's not so much speaking of near-term vengeance, but future. Because he says, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day, so future-oriented, to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all those who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. So Paul is encouraging those at Thessalonica who are facing persecution and hardship. And it's with this context that Paul frames this prayer for them. And so going back to the text there, you'll see that as he prays for them and prays by extension for all who are in Christ, he says he's asking God, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to act and intrude in their lives. And, and we sometimes gloss over this and we realize, wow, he's really praying for this to happen, for God to do these things in their lives. And I think by association, we have to realize these are tangible things. And when we pray for one another, when we pray for our church, these are tangible things that we're asking God to work out and to do. Sometimes we can get a little bit um, apathetic in prayers. 
prayer lists are kind of that way. We can pray through our prayer lists and feel like we've done something when maybe we haven't realized, wow, there's, there's some real substance in what we're doing when we approach the Lord that way and try to remind ourselves. And I think these are great models of how to pray. And so, once again, I want to read that text to clue us into where we're going. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling, may fulfill every resolve for good, and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus. So I'm going to leave that up there. Now to unpack and to understand this prayer, we're going to look particularly at a couple ideas in here, and not maybe the breadth of everything that's in there, but particularly I want to look at good resolves and the phrase works of faith. We're going to need to understand what Paul means by being made worthy of our calling also, as opposed to having been made worthy by Christ's atonement for our sin and how those two play together. So as we look at this text, um, to this end we pray for you, that God may make you worthy of power. If you have the NSB or if you have the uh, NIV, there's a little different translation there. NSB says good, uh, good resolves is translated desire for goodness. And if you have the NIV, it, it translates that as good purpose. Um, so what's the difference between these translations? Is it good resolves? Is it good purpose? Or is it desire for goodness? And the word there is eudokia, or eudokia, does seem to include this idea of desire as well as a considered judgment as to what is desirable. So desirable, um, all these things, desire for goodness, good purpose, good resolves, those are all really some of which the same thing. In fact, the lexicon, if you look it up, says goodwill and favor, good pleasure, purposes, or intention. Um, so those are consistent what he's praying for there. And so when I use the term resolve this morning, it is, I think this is what's coming out there. Deliberate acts of the mind and the will that aspire to and pursue goodness. Deliberate acts of the mind and will that aspire to and pursue goodness. And so for some of us, that may be objective goals or resolutions that are considered thought-through goals. It may be more intuitive goals or more reflective pursuits, but generally Paul has in mind a biblical orientation that moves us forward as we have aspirations and intention and resolves, or resolutions, you could even say. So the general proposition for the sermon is this. God is involved in all of our resolves, our resolutions, our desires for change, when they are aligned with the word and are carried out by faith in his power. And so these resolves, whether they are resolutions, whether they're areas of our life that we see that we say, boy, that's an area that I need to change in or grow. Maybe they're aspirations that we have for growth and maturity. Maybe they're convictions of sin and we know that God's convicting us and, and wants to move us forward. And those are resolves that we have um, to turn those areas around. Those are what I'm, I think we're including in this understanding, resolves and works of faith by his power. And then following that, we have the phrase in there, uh, so that, which forms the logic of the purpose here, which we're going to look at also. 
So Paul prays with three things. I think if you look at that text, there's three things he has in mind. God makes you worthy, number one. He fulfills every good resolve. And number three, every work of faith. And then he answers the question of how. And the answer there is by his power. And the question of why, it's introduced by the phrase, so that. And so Paul provides two things there on the so that's. The name of Christ might be glorified in you and you glorified in him. And the un- then the other challenge that we really face is to understand. What does it mean to become worthy of God's call? So I'm going to try to touch on each of those points and see if we can um, make a little bit of sense of how this communicates with us. Now, I struggled a bit with this phrase here. Um, hang on. To this end, we always pray for you that God may make you walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you and may fulfill every good resolve and work of faith by his power. I struggled a little bit with the phrase. Is God, is he saying, is Paul saying that God makes you walk in a manner worthy by fulfilling good resolves and works of faith by his power? Or is Paul praying and requesting three separate things, that God may make you walk in a manner worthy, that he may fulfill every good result, and fulfill every work of faith by power? I don't think there's a conclusion to be made grammatically, but I think theologically and otherwise, it makes sense that we're talking about a cohesive, connected process. Um, the sense of being worthy of his calling, which is made up of seeing good re- resolutions and resolves, good aspirations, good intentions lived out in works of faith. And I think that makes practical sense. So what does it mean to walk in a manner worthy of God's call. Think about that. What does it mean to walk in a manner worthy of God's call? Well, we're given a clue in 1 Thessalonians, when he writes to the Thessalonians church there, in this next verse. Let's see. I didn't want to do that. That's the wrong button there. Hang on. I've got two computers I'm working here. So what does it mean there? He says... We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And so Paul uses the same language to help us understand what God's call is. He exhorts and encourages us to lead a life worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So his call is a call to glory. It's the granting of a destiny And so there's a few verses that I think speak to that that are helpful. Um, Recall in Romans 8.30. No, let's go. This is 1 Thessalonians there. We exhorted each of you, each one of you, and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So Paul uses the same language to help us understand what God's call is. He exhorts and he encourages us to lead a life worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom. So this is a call to glory that we are called to live with. And the same language is, is used 
um, consistently here. It's a granting of this destiny. Um, so we look at the next verse here, which is, this should be, no, you know what? I'm, I can't see the screen. That's why I'm kind of getting lost here. So 1 Thessalonians, um, let me do this. So the first verse there, he, call, he uses, those whom he called, he also justified, and those who he justified, he also glorified. So we know that we're already glorified, right? And so we're saying, well, how does, how does that go on something that we do? And then 1 Thessalonians 5.24, he who called you is faithful, and he will do it. And then the last one, he will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called in 1 Corinthians. So we see this idea all put together here, which is helpful to understand what God is doing in our lives. So now, with back to um, this slide here, it says that there is a way of life that is worthy of that call. And I think that's logical to us. There's a way of living that's worthy of that call to glory. And so it, worthy doesn't mean that we're deserving or, or we're deserving of merit. It means a fitting life, a proper life, appropriate. Um, Luke 3.8 calls it fruit worthy of repentance. And so we are called to live in this way that is worthy of Christ who calls us. So you seek God's power to fulfill good resolves, to change, to grow, and to mature, and perhaps get rid of the things in our, our lives that are unbefitting of our call as believers. And because until you do, there's this gnawing sense of impropriety and unfitness and inappropriateness in our heart when there are things that don't align with God's glory. And that's what he's talking about there. We should seek God's power to fulfill good resolves because this is the way that God makes us worthy of our calling to glory and he makes our lives suitable for the destiny that we're called to. So I think that's the sense that Paul is giving us there. And then he gives us the purpose, the end result, so to speak, of why he prays that God would bring about these good resolves, resolutions, intentions aspirations. He says, so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you. And I think this is true in two sentences. We glorify God by living lives that are worthy of him, by living and representing him in such a way that's appropriate. But additionally, verse 11 is a prayer that God would fulfill our good resolves by his power. And we pray for you he says that God would make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every good resolve and work of faith by his power. And so we know that this faith and this aspirations are coming from God. They're coming through Christ because verse 12 ends according to the grace of our God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says that's why the Lord Jesus Christ will be Glorified, And that's the exact same point in 1 Peter 4.11, let him who serves serve in the strength that God supplies, that, everything God, that in everything God may be glorified in Christ. And so here in 2 Thessalonians, Paul says, let everyone fulfill his good resolves by the power of God so that the name of the Lord will be glorified. God gives power, God gets the glory through Jesus Christ. 
Now, there's one caution, I think, that's worthy of mentioning that I think is a, more of an application. There's a huge difference between worldly morality, worldly morality and Christianity. There are people and laws that are moral, and yet they're godless. And Paul says, don't make good resolves godlessly. Do them in the power of Christ. Not depending on God's... Well, so what makes good resolves godless? Think about that. What makes good resolves godless? Not depending on God's power for its formulation. Not giving God glory for its fulfillment. And until we see this, we're so vulnerable to the substitution of morality for Christianity. Good things, morality for Christianity. Sinful morality is not the performance of good resolves. It's not by God's power. It's not for God's glory. Just a note that I was, Matthew and I, Shipley and I got a chance to maybe discuss how that fleshes its out in a particular application. And let me just mention some thoughts that I had as a result of that. Because Matthew has had a good insight on what it means to be a believer in a secular institution that has been maybe a tool for the enemies of Christ. And yet that's true of so many cultural structures and institutions that are maybe used for evil, but they have good things in them, but they sometimes get good and bad results. So the same would be true if you're part of, say, the medical community or arts and entertainment or higher education, or big business, or high tech, or social media. I mean, we could go on and on. And yet, for a biblical analogy of being involved in secular institutions, perhaps, that accomplish evil, and yet, as believers, being involved in those, you don't need to look any further than Queen Esther, and Joseph, and Daniel, and Roman centurions, and Philippian jailers, and members of Caesar's households, to see people who were in places that we would say, well, there was a lot of evil that was a result of those, and yet God put godly people in to influence those for good. So I think we can see the question is not simply whether we can be in a secular or godless institution, but whether we can be salt and light and engage in God's power for the glory of God. So these are the kinds of roles and participations that speak to our motivations. Why am I there? What am I trying to accomplish? How is God using any of those things? Is my involvement in God's power? And is it by God's power? And is it for God's glory? So I think there's a big difference between being upset about the culture and losing all the feel-good aspects of we enjoyed. And I'm, I'm sure for all of us, we can go back to a place we can say, wow, that was a cool time in my life where everything was kind of neat and everything was this and that. And, you know, for, for me, I grew up with my three sons and Ozzie and Harriet and all those things, and we have this image of, of what life was like, whether it was real or not, probably not. But we have these ideas that there's a time we could go back to things where things were better. You know, I think we can get lost in those things because they were maybe moral or they were more moral than they are now. So there's a difference, though, being upset about the culture and those feel-good aspects and being upset about a culture that is lost and has lost the desire for Christ to be glorified. 
So we can and we should be champions for such things as morality and culture and even proper nationalism. And yet there's a secular morality that excludes or ignores Christ from those concerns. So civil religion is not what we need to aspire to, but to see Christ exalted in all these aspirations is what we need to pursue. This is where our motives come into play. Is Christ exalted? Is Christ glorified? What has God called me to do and be? What what impact can I make for the cause of Christ? And is it part of taking dominion? And I think that's something that should be worked out as a thinking there too. Our great longing to see Jesus Christ glorified in the world and therefore, if we have that longing, it will be to seek the power of God to fulfill our good resolves. And so in verse 12, he says, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. And you're thinking, wait a second, to be glorified in you and you in him. That means how would I be glorified in Christ? You ever thought about that? Are you glorified in Christ? So someone may ask that question. Doesn't Paul teach that those who are called, he justifies, and those he, whom he justified, he glorified already? He did that? Aren't we all the called ones guaranteed glorification? To which someone may say, well, then why does Paul pray here that those who are called would meet certain conditions so that they can be glorified with Christ? Is our glorification certain, or is it dependent on things like good resolves? The answer is yes, our glorification is certain. But also it's yes, our glorification is dependent on living worthy of our call by fulfilling good resolves. Those things are both true. Now, if you believe, you know, how are those true? If you believe in the sovereignty of God, there's no problem there. If you don't believe in the sovereignty of God, there's a big problem. (laughs) But he can guarantee, if God is sovereign, he can guarantee your glorification and he can guarantee whatever obedience he requires of you as a prerequisite for glorification. God can do that. He can have, he can guarantee you will be glorified, but he can also guarantee that he will work in your life to bring you to a place of being glorified. I have uh, have a short paragraph by Piper that explains this thing. He says, it's no inconsistency for God to establish an infallible connection between being called and being glorified, and then to require as a prerequisite of glorification that those who, whom he called walk worthy of the call. And this text shows why there is no inconsistency, namely because God is the one who by his power enables the fulfillment of good resolves which lead to glory. God calls God calls, God promises glory to the called. God establishes prerequisites for glory, and he fulfills them by his power. If we are willing to let God really be God, from whom and through whom and to whom are all things, then the necessity of obedience will not be a contradiction to our assurance of glorification. So, in what way are we glorified? 
We're glorified as we take on the fullness of Christ in this life. Our glorification is wrapped up in Christ, and we see our resolves worked out in Christ. He's glorified in that whole process that we have to be involved in, and we find our glory wrapped up in his working out our salvation. I think the verse that really, to me, puts legs on that is 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed, and he's talking about how this takes place, being transformed into that same image, that glorified image, from one degree of glory to another. And that's kind of another way of looking at it, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And that's a, way, that's a way, I think, that really makes sense to me of how this process takes place. And so the three reasons that Paul gives of why we should seek these things, to seek to be pursue good resolves in God's power, and I'm going to put up, back up our slide there, The three reasons that Paul gives why we should seek this and pursue good resolves in God's power is, one, because in doing so we become worthy of his call, because in doing so in Christ, Christ is glorified, and thirdly, because in doing so we we too will share in his glory. So application, how do we do this whole process? What do we come to that now that we see how this is put together? How, How does this happen? Um, let's say, for example, you have areas of laziness in your life that you're convicted of or you need to change, or maybe you say, wow, I've got some area of impatience um, that I think God is calling me to change, and it raises its ugly head regularly with your closest friends, your family members, and stupid drivers, maybe. Um, perhaps you're aware that your stewardship of your resources is not putting God first. Maybe you're struggling with even tithing consistently. Maybe it's consistent Bible reading that you're struggling with and failing at. Maybe it's sharing your faith that you're seeing the need for resolves and changes in your life and action and boldness. These are all works of faith. And they may be areas that we recognize we're weak and we resolve, we bring resolution that we want to change those areas and we want to see growth and we want to see maturity and we want to see change. And so this is how I think it fleshes us out in our life on a day-to-day The engagement of God's power never takes the place, though, of engaging our will. It's not, oh, let go and let God. It's something that we have to engage our will. The power of God in sanctification never makes us passive. The power of God engages itself beneath and behind and within our will, not in the place of our will. And so the evidence of God's power in our lives is not the absence of, of willingness, but the strength of our willingness. Some of you may be um, familiar with uh, St. Patrick's prayer. At least it's attributed to him. And there's been some songs based on that. Um, but it, the, the latter part of that, that poem that he wrote, or his prayer, goes like this. And I think it infuses with meaning of Christ working in us. He says, he, he says in this kind of this benediction of this Prayer, Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, 
Christ when I sit down, Christ when I arise, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me, I arise today through a mighty strength, the invocation of the Trinity, through belief in the threeness, through confession of the oneness of the creator of creation. I think it's a rich way of talking about how Christ infuses our lives and how it can become every part of our resolves and our desires and so forth. So, this whole process of being actively engaged and this process of walking worthy of God's call is part of resolving towards righteousness. And so if you have any lingering sin in your life or if you keep neglecting some good deed just because you've been waiting around for the motivation, you're compounding your disobedience if you ignore those things because God's working. God never appears with power in your life in any other form than a good resolve that you make and keep. There is... I'm going to read this one little paragraph by C.S. Lewis as we kind of wind this thing together. And it's, it's interesting reading Lewis on these things. Um, but he has a quote in the... the um, this comes from uh, Problem of Pain. And he says this, Human will becomes truly creative and truly our own when it is holy God's. And this is one of the many senses in which he that loses his soul will find it. And he says this, when we act from ourselves alone, that is from God in ourselves, we are collaborators in, we're collaborators in and live instruments of creation. Think about that. We're collaborators in and live instruments of creation. And that's why such an act undoes with backward mutters of desevering powers the uncreative spell which Adam laid upon his species. I know, that's really thick. And that's part of that's a quote from Milton. But this idea of being collaborators or live instruments of creation is what Lewis sees as re- reversing the decreative results of the fall. Eden was to be a paradise for us to live and enjoy, and that was lost by Adam's disobedience, which Lewis calls the uncreative spill which Adam laid on his species. Interesting way of putting it. The mandate to take dominion over creation is to bring restoration to wherever God places us, to bring order and fruitfulness and blessing and harmony and, and holiness and to be an instrument and a tool for God's glory. Time and time again, man's sin brings destruction and rebellion into creation, but God breaks in upon those times to bring newness and grace. And we witness that most succinctly and dramatically in in Genesis, right? The trajectory of after Adam with murder, increasing rebellion, and wickedness. And what did it bring about? It brought about an act of decreation by God with the flood, and a new start with Noah's family, where he's told, once again, to be fruitful and multiply, and a new renewed covenant. But once again, you have men rising up 
to rival and compete against God till we get to the point of Babylon and the Tower of Babel. And what does God do? He decreates again and disperses everybody across the face of the earth. And so we see this whole process happening and there's this image of the spirit-led resolves that is part of the restoration of creation, even a fulfilling that I think we have of the dominion mandate, which effectively is de-severing the effects of the fall as we look forward to a fuller restoration of Eden that God originally created, the new heavens and the new earth. But in the interim, we're to take dominion, bring order and blessing to wherever God places us. And as I see Carl here this morning, I'm thinking about Carl's explanation at least uh, his kind of layman's explanation of what taking dominion for. It's organizing your garage. It wasn't something like you that coined that, that uh, understanding. And I think those are the, se- those are the most simple place- ways to put it, but taking dominion can be anything from infusing and bringing God's glory to bear on our jobs and our families and how we live and on our garage and our lawns and, and so forth. So I think those are important ways to look at this. So the point is that people who believe in the sovereignty of God, like we do, must not fear to engage their wills in the struggle for holiness. Strive to enter by the narrow gate. For many, I tell you, will, not, will seek to enter and will not be able because it is something we have to aspire and work at and move to. Let me just give you a concise conclusion that I think it brings us to. Resolves good intentions, planning, pursuing good plans and intentions towards growth, maturity and holiness are the means that God uses in our lives to bring order, to take dominion over the world in which he has placed us. We must seek God's power to fulfill good resolves, and that's what Paul prays for the church. They result in bringing glory to God, and they're part of God's plan to glorify us in him. And that means developing, I think, an arsenal of God's promises and pray that God would show his power by helping us believe his word over against the lies and the temptations of the evil ones. The evil one. Let's, uh, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your mercies in infusing into us, all around us, underneath us, over us, to our right and left, in how we see and how people see us, infusing your work in our life in such a tangible way that we bring about good resolves and intentions, that we are compelled by your Holy Spirit to bring you to bear in every situation, every opportunity that you give to us. We pray that we would be ones who would grab hold and move forward and not be lazy and not be apathetic towards the opportunity and the call that you have in our lives. Father, we pray that you would Take now this time in your word and that you would bless it as we go before you uh, and spend time at your table. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.